You can turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, verse 57. We'll go into chapter 2, uh, verse 20 this morning, looking at the birth of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Uh, we thank you for the gift of your Son. And we do ask that you would give us a deeper understanding of, of who you are, Jesus, that you would leave the comforts of heaven to come in human flesh, to be born in Bethlehem, or would you speak to our hearts? Father, I pray you'd set me aside and just give me grace and strength in teaching your word, and we would all have hearts that are open and ears that are open to you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, have you been looking for some good news, some good uh, tidings? Well, don't read the news if you're looking for good news, right? The shepherds, Hear this from the angels. The angel comes to the shepherd and says, I bring you glad tidings of great joy to all people because Christ is born. And we're looking for a lot of reasons to find joy, but there's no greater source of joy than the gospel, that Jesus came, born in human flesh, died on the cross, rose again for our sins. And for those that are believers, we fell in love with the gospel the moment we trusted Christ for our Savior, but our need for the gospel never ends, amen? We need the gospel this morning, and thankfully we have the gospel. Jesus' love for us is present. So we're going to look at the glad tidings of Christ in our life uh, this morning. Before we jump into our text, I just wanted to give a little framework to Christ being born in human flesh. This comes from Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 5. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So, so Jesus is God, but made himself of no, ram, no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. How did Jesus come? He came making himself of no reputation. He comes in the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. And we see that really highlighted in Luke chapter 2. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Before we look at the birth of Christ, we're also going to look at the birth of John the Baptist in verse 57. Now, Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. Elizabeth and Zacharias had been barren. They're old and not able to have children, but God blessed them supernaturally with John the Baptist to where when he's born, the neighborhood rejoices. There's a block party that takes place. In verse 59, so it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. God in the law said for Jewish boys at the eighth day to be circumcised. It was a sign of their covenant with God. It was an outward declaration of what God had done in their hearts. So, so John on the eighth day is to be circumcised. And apparently also this is when you would receive your name. Kind of nice as a parent, you'd have seven days to really go, do we want to call him this, right? So here's the eighth day, and they're giving the name, and everyone's thinking he's going to be Zacharias. He's going to be a junior. 
But his mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. Gabriel the angel had given the message that his name was to be John. So they're breaking from tradition and going to call him John. John means Jehovah is the gracious giver, graced by God. So really a fitting name for John the Baptist that Jehovah is the gracious uh, giver. God's grace being poured out on John the Baptist to point us uh, to Christ. In verse 61, but they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who's called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. Zacharias was not able to speak because of his unbelief. When Gabriel said, you're going to have a son, he didn't believe it. So God then allowed for him to not speak. So they're signing to him saying, well, what do you think? And he answered and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying his name is John. So they all marveled. Say, no, it's exactly what Elizabeth said. His name is to be John. Notice what happens in verse 64. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke praising God. As soon as he acknowledged that yes, his name is to be John, God allowed him to speak again. And what is on his tongue? Praise to God. That's what's in his heart. He's not bitter. He's not angry that he wasn't able to speak. He's just so thankful for what God is doing in his life. What I appreciate about Zacharias is he doesn't stay in a place of unbelief. Initially, he was in a place of unbelief, but now he's believing in God's promise. He's ready for his son to be named John. I think our journey is like Zacharias a lot of times where we may struggle with unbelief, but we don't have to stay there. We can come to a place of, of trusting what God is doing in our lives. In verse 65, then fear came all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea, which is southern Israel, and all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, what kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. God even uses Zacharias's unbelief in his grace because he wasn't able to speak. Now he's able to speak all of a sudden. This gets everybody's attention. There's something special about John the Baptist. And God's using it to build anticipation for John the Baptist to have a platform, a stage, to point people uh, to Christ. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, the Holy Spirit has been very active in Luke chapter 1. We saw the Holy Spirit filling John the Baptist even in the womb. He's in the womb, but yet the Holy Spirit has filled him. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit to recognize what God was doing with Mary. Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit in her conception, and now Zacharias is filled with the Holy Spirit. I think it's fitting that the Holy Spirit is so active leading up to the birth of Christ, because the whole mission and purpose of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Jesus. If we want to move of the Holy Spirit in our lives, focus on Christ. Go out and share Christ with others. And the Holy Spirit's going to be in that place and move because he's all about Christ. He's all about pointing people uh, to Christ. So Zechariah has this prophecy from the Lord. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. 
and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Zacharias understands that John the Baptist is going to point to the Messiah, point to Jesus. Jesus is going to bring redemption for the nation of Israel, for all of uh, mankind, raised up a horn of, of salvation in the house of his servant David, Jesus being born from the lineage of, of David. In verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant. Does Jesus mean the deliverance of enemies for the nation of Israel? Yes, absolutely. But the question is timing. Not in the first coming of Christ. In the first coming of Christ, Jesus is providing salvation as a suffering servant. But the second coming, he's going to return and rule and reign from Jerusalem. So Zacharias, this part of the prophecy is going to be fulfilled in the second coming of Christ when Israel is delivered from their enemies. This was disappointing for a lot of Israelites because they were ready to be under the thumb, the tyranny, the rule of the Roman Empire. Verse 73, to the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. This is our response to God's deliverance, his work in our lives that we would serve him and that we would love him and we would, would follow him. Now, specifically, this prophecy over John the Baptist, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. So you can kind of imagine Zacharias holding his son, his eight-day-old son, and saying, and you, child, you're going to be a prophet of the highest. You're going to be the forerunner to point people to Jesus Christ, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way. John the Baptist going out in front of Jesus Christ, preaching a message of repentance that causes people's hearts to be prepared and to be ready for Christ, prepare his way, preparing the way for Jesus. In verse 77 through 79, we see some more specifics about John the Baptist's ministry. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of sins. As John was preaching this message of repentance, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It caused people to be aware of their sin. It seemed like something happened through the ministry of John the Baptist, through the Holy Spirit, where people were convicted about their sin and Jesus was the answer to that sin. Jesus is the one who brings the remission of sin. Without the knowledge of sin and the conviction of sin and repentance of sin, we can't find the solution of, of Jesus being our Savior. Through the tender mercies of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, God's grace that Christ would visit us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. John the Baptist was used to bring light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Doesn't this seem to be our culture today? in the United States and Colorado Springs, just 
sitting in the shadow of death, sitting in darkness, but God longs to bring people out of darkness into his love, into his grace and his uh, forgiveness. And then lastly, to guide our feet into the way of peace. John the Baptist was used by the Lord to, to guide people's feet into the way of peace. Peace of knowing that they're right with God. Having the peace that surpasses understanding. Walking in the peace of the Lord. As we've been touching on the life of John the Baptist, it's stirred my heart to pray that God would move in the same way today that God would raise up a a voice. It might be a particular person that has a ministry like John the Baptist, or maybe it's collectively through the body of Christ, not just one particular church, but the body of Christ pointing to Jesus Christ, pointing to the need for a savior. Wouldn't it be phenomenal to see men's hearts reached for the Lord and to see their hearts turned towards their children, to see children's hearts reached for the Lord? And to see their hearts then turn towards their fathers for, for a whole region to be impacted with the love of Jesus Christ. We need it. Israel needed it at this time. We need it right now to have the knowledge of Jesus Christ proclaimed and declared. A little bit of a spoiler alert with John the Baptist's life is it doesn't end like you think that it would. If you're the forerunner of Christ, you wouldn't anticipate that you would ultimately end up in prison and be killed. John the Baptist got killed for this message of repentance because he spoke out about God's design for sexuality. If there's one thing that's going to get you in trouble in our culture right now, it's speaking out about God's design for sexuality. And he spoke out against Herod, the governing official, and Herod didn't like it, and especially Herod's wife uh, didn't like it. And ultimately had John the Baptist arrested. While he's arrested, he starts to question, are you the Messiah? If you're the Messiah, why am I sitting in prison? Why am I sitting in jail? Sends a messenger to Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? After all that John experienced, remember, John baptized Jesus and heard the Father from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. And now John the Baptist is like, are you really the one? Jesus sends a message back to John the Baptist and says, blessed are those who do not stumble because of me. John, trust me. I know that you're in prison. I got this. And ultimately, then John was martyred. He was beheaded for his love for Christ, for his commitment to God's truth. So though there's a great need for a John the Baptist type of ministry, it does come with a cost, but it's absolutely worth it. As we look back on the pages of scripture, we go, wow, it was worth it. God used John the Baptist to touch a generation, to prepare a heart of groups of people to know Christ In verse 80, so the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the desert till the day of his manifestation to Israel. I love this because it speaks of John the Baptist's physical growth that he grew as a child, but his spirit grew strong. And this is what we pray for our kids, for our grandkids, for the hundreds of kids that are over in uh, children's ministry right now and in the junior high ministry and our high school and and college ministry, that their spirits would grow strong. And it is a difficult 
generation and many challenges upon their generation, but God is greater and able to, to strengthen their spirit. So here's John the Baptist hanging out in the desert, hanging out in the wilderness, and God is preparing him. God is strengthening his, his spirit for what's going to be at hand. Chapter 2, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all of the world should be registered. This census first took place while Canarius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Caesar Augustus, we know a lot about him from history. Augustus was a name that he gave to himself, and it means holy or revered. Normally, it was referred to of deities, of these false gods. So he's elevating himself to a level of deity, Caesar Augustus. Caesar thought that he was in charge, but ultimately we see clearly that God was in charge. David Guzik in his commentary, Enduring Word, if, if you want to look at his commentary, just Google Enduring Word, but he gives us a, a great history on Caesar Augustus that I want to share with you. It says he was born with the name Octavian. And the reason I want to share this with you is because it really helps us to know the time frame in which Christ was born. So Caesar Augustus, his given name was Octavian, named after his father. His, grandma, his grandmother was the sister of Julius Caesar. And being a talented young man, Octavian came to the attention of his great uncle. Julius Caesar eventually adopted Octavian as his son, and he was made his official heir in 45 BC. So Caesar Augustus becomes the official heir of Julius Caesar. Within a year, Caesar was murdered, and Octavian joined with two others, Mark Anthony and Lepidus, in splitting the domination of Rome three ways. So now Rome is split three ways. For decades, the whole Mediterranean world was filled with wars and violence. It became far worse. There were years of bloody, brutal fighting for power and money in Rome and providences. Octavian and Anthony soon pushed Lepidus out of the picture, and a civil war develops between these two, Octavian and Anthony, for 13 years. And this is where Cleopatra from Egypt gets involved, and she brings aid to Anthony, but ultimately... Caesar Augustus, Octavian, he is victorious. Upon being victorious, he gives himself the title Caesar Augustus as the sole ruler of Rome. This is the point in which Jesus is born. You've got this pompous, God-rebelling leader who's been absolutely brutal. Durant writes this about this time period. The lusty peninsula was worn out with 20 years of civil war. Its farms had been neglected, its towns had been sacked or besieged, much of its wealth had been stolen or destroyed, administrations and protections had broken down, robbers made every street unsafe at night, highwaymen roamed the roads, kidnapped travelers and sold them into slavery. Trade diminished, investment stood still, interest rates soared. Property values fell. Morals, which had been loosened by riches and luxury, had not been improved by destitution and chaos. A, for 
For few conditions are more demoralizing than poverty that comes after wealth. Rome was full of men who had lost their economic footing and their moral stability. Isn't that interesting? Rome was filled with those that had lost their economic footing and their moral stability. Soldiers who had tasted adventure had learned to kill. Citizens who had seen their savings consumed in taxes and inflation of war and waited for some returning tide to lift them back to affluence, women dizzy with freedom, multiplying divorces, abortions, and adulteries. This was a very dark time in human history, and Caesar Augustus is feeling like he rules all, but the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is born in this setting. Why is this so encouraging to us? Because it seems like governments have always liked to track you and give you mandates, right? We're living in a time where that's not fairly uncommon. And some of us can get fairly concerned. But just remember, who's in control? Is Caesar Augustus in control or is God in control? God's in control. How do we know that from our text? Because what happens from this census? Joseph and Mary have to leave Nazareth and go to Bethlehem. Why is it important for them to get to Bethlehem? Micah 5.2, write it down. Micah 5.2, one verse in the Old Testament, God promised that the ruler would come out of Israel and be born in Bethlehem, this small town in southern Israel. How did God get Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem through Caesar Augustus? So I got good news. No government is the ultimate authority, whether it's China or it's Taiwan or it's Russia or it's the United States of America or my goodness, Canada is going off the rails. <laughs> and there's actually a lot of persecution going towards believers in, in Canada that's coming from the government. Do you know who's in control? Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And we see that played out in, in our text. In verse four, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Bethlehem means house of bread. God picks a location for his son to be born that's relatable. Jesus is not born in New York City. He's not born in Los Angeles. He's not born in Jerusalem. He's not born in Rome. He's born in Bethlehem, which from Micah 5 tells us that it's this little town that was not known for much. It's big bragging rights is that it was the, the city of David. But God chose to come to Bethlehem because he made himself of no reputation. Why would he make himself of no reputation? So all people, no matter your background, can relate to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate royal family, if you would. He's God in human flesh, but he makes himself of no reputation, born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph, who are betrothed. They're not married yet. Mary is a virgin, and there is a lot of questions, and they were looked at with great skepticism. But Jesus chose that as well in humility to make himself of no reputation. Maybe that's something that, that you grew up with, that, that your family, because of your parents' decisions, you were always looked at with a questionable eye. Well, Jesus understands that because no one believed this whole 
virgin birth thing. I doubt that Mary would even share it with people. She probably wouldn't go around and say, yeah, Joseph and I, we didn't do anything. The Holy Spirit came. They're like, yeah, right. The, the Holy Spirit came. And it's all of this that points to Christ making himself of, of no reputation. In verse 6, so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. My goodness, you'd think somebody would give up their room. Here you have this young couple. Mom's about ready to have this baby, but, but no one's willing to give up their room uh, for Jesus. So they find themselves with the animals. How do we know that? Because Jesus is laid in a manger. Seems that he was born in the barn. Most likely the barn was a cave. As he's born, he's placed in a manger, a free feeding trough for animals. We don't have a lot of details here, but it seems like Mary and Joseph are by themselves. They're not in their hometown of Nazareth. They're not surrounded by family and friends. This young couple alone in a barn and Christ is born and placed in a manger. Most of the world can't relate to our babies being born in hospitals. That's just a, a foreign concept. You know, when you th talk about a hospital in Gulu, Uganda, and, and babies being born in, in hospitals, babies are born in huts. This is the way it's been throughout history. Babies are born at home, and a lot of homes are very humble, especially compared to American standards. And God wasn't born in a hospital. He, he wasn't born in the, the best health care. He was born in, in, in a manger. Well, guess what? People in poverty can relate to that. People living in a hut can, can relate to that. Jesus made himself of no reputation because he came to be the savior of all. The messengers that first hear of Christ's arrival in verse 8 is unlikely. Unlikely messengers in verse 8. Now they were in the same country, shepherds living out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Shepherds in this region were known to take care of the temple sheep. Bethlehem's only five miles from Jerusalem. Lots of lambs slaughtered in the sacrifice. They were known for keeping these sheep. So as they would watch temple lambs, they're going to get introduced to the Lamb of God. Morris writes about the view of shepherds at this time. As a class, shepherds had a bad reputation. More regrettable was their habit of confusing mine with thine as they moved about the country. They were considered unreliable and were not allowed to give testimony in the law courts. They were so looked down upon, known as being thieves, that they couldn't give testimony in a court of law, but God finds them fit to give testimony. Once again, God's sending a message here that he came for all. He came for the weak and the lowly, that he uses the foolish, to be able to confound the wise. In verse 9, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. You've got two things taking place in verse 9. The first, the angel of the Lord. If that's not enough, when someone came in contact with an angel, it was a terrifying experience, but you also have the glory of God. And there were times in the Old Testament where God showed his glory, in the tabernacle, in the temple, and God's glory was so thick that 
the priests couldn't continue to minister in the tabernacle and the temple. So here the shepherds are doing their thing. They're being faithful. They're watching the sheep by night. And then boom, here's an angel and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And the angel said to them, don't be afraid for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Never forget that Jesus is good news. In your life, Jesus is good news. He's good tidings. And as we go and share Christ with others, we are sharing good news. Why is this good news? Why is this great joy to all people? Because we're sinners. Sin is when we miss the mark. Sin is when we willfully choose to disobey God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our sin removes us from God. Our sin brings us to a place where it's just of God to eternally send us to hell. But God sent his son. Jesus comes in in human flesh. At this point, maybe he's a six or seven pounder. The creator of the universe is dependent upon his creation, lives a perfect life, dies upon the cross and rise again to all who repent and believe are saved. To know that we know that we're the child of God, to know that we know that we have eternal life and this produces great joy in our lives. Happiness is based on our circumstances, and that's up and down. But joy can be consistent based upon who God is and his love for us. Psalm 16 verse 11 tells us that in his presence is is the fullness of joy. I think more than maybe times in the past, as believers, we need to press into this joy that we have in the Lord. It's going to be a roller coaster. It's going to be up and down. In this life, there's going to be tribulation. But be of good cheer, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. So this is great joy, good tidings to all people. Yes, for the nation of Israel, but all people because Jesus has died for the world. Verse 11, for there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Notice that phrase, there is born to you. This gift of Jesus in the manger is for the shepherds. Yes, the shepherds have a job to do to widely proclaim this, but first to experience God has come for you. God has been born in human flesh for you. In the city of David, you're going to find a savior. His mission is to be our savior, to solve our sin problem, to redeem us, who is Christ. Christ is Messiah, literally means Messiah. The prophesied one from the Old Testament the Lord. He's the Lord. He's he's the King of Kings. This is not just your normal baby that is born. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. I just feel like we need to sing a Christmas carol right now. I mean, like full on in August, right? Jesus, you're going to know that this is Jesus because the babe is going to be in his swaddling clothes. His parents swaddle their babies, but the sign is he's in a manger. Babies would not normally be in a manger, and that is going to indicate God left his throne, humbled himself to come in human flesh and be placed in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, so now not just one angel, but a multitude of angels. What if, what if God could, would choose to open up our eyes to the spiritual realm? Maybe how many angels are gathered with us as we sing together and declare the glory of God. But now there's, there's a host, 
host of angels, and this is what they're saying, glory to God in the highest, and on, on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Glory to God in the highest. Let's try to consider the angels' perspective. The angels have seen Christ in his glory. The angels are there at creation when the Father speaks and Christ creates and let there be light and there was light. Now they're witnessing God in human flesh, born in Bethlehem, placed in a manger, but they also see humanity. They see the sin of Israel, the sin of the Roman Empire, the sin of the world, and they be maybe scratching their heads going, God is giving his son for this group here, this group of sinners? Why would he do that? Because he loves them. Only God. Only God is so gracious and so good. And the response then is glory to God. Glory to God in the highest. The result of Jesus coming is on earth peace. This is not meaning that Christ in his first coming is bringing world peace. What it does mean is that in our hearts, he brings peace. As we know the gospel, we have peace with God and we also have the, the peace of God. Goodwill toward men. Sometimes these verses are very familiar to us and we can stop to realize the meaning of it. Well, what does it mean, goodwill towards men? That God is favorable towards us. How do we know that God is favorable towards us? By the gift of his son. This is God's gracious gift to the world, to those who will believe. So it was when Jesus had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known uh, to us. The shepherds are faithful. They're like, let's go check this out. The angels told us this. Well, let's go find this baby. They're willing. They're ready. And they came with haste. They're running into Bethlehem and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. What an encouragement to Mary and Joseph. Not having family and friends support, looked at with great scrutiny, but here the shepherds have just been told by an angel what is taking place and they're rejoicing with Mary and Joseph. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. This wasn't just, well, if this comes up in conversation. They went around Bethlehem, this whole region, making it widely known. What they experienced with the angel, what the angel had declared to them about the Christ child, that they found Jesus, just as the angel said, lying in a manger. And this causes, in this whole region between John the Baptist's birth and Jesus' birth, where people are really starting to wonder, what's God doing? And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered in her heart. Like only a mom can. She's, she's hearing this from a different perspective. She's hearing this from the heart of a mom. She's seeing this from a different perspective. She's seeing it through the lens of a, of a mom. There will come the point where she watches her son be crucified on the cross. And I wonder what memories came to her heart and her mind of Jesus being born and 
holding him for the first time, God in, in human flesh, having the shepherds come, having the wise men come, Jesus bailing her out at the wedding feast and turning water in, into wine. She's just putting all of these memories and pondering them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, and it was told them. And church, I think this is our response this morning. We're going to go our way in, in just a moment, and may we go glorifying and, and praising God. I don't know about you, but there, there's too many days where I don't press into the great joy of the gospel. The presence of Jesus is real in my life. His, his love is real in my life, but I'm focused on my circumstances. I'm focused on difficulties. I, I'm not pressing into the great joy in the person and the work of, of Jesus Christ. It's, it's very possible for us this morning to have this go in one ear and out another and go, isn't that fun? We celebrated Christmas in August, right? But it's another to really stop and ponder the amazing gift of Jesus Christ for unto you, for unto us, a child is born. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 15 is an interesting verse, just a small verse that, that Paul writes. And he says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift singular. The old King James translates it, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. What's the gift that Paul's referring to? One gift, it's Jesus. And Paul, this great orator, says, I can't even begin to describe this amazing gift of Jesus Christ. When we get to heaven, I believe that our minds are going to just be blown because we're going to see God, we're going to see Jesus, and we're still going to have the Word. The Word of God is eternal. Luke 2 is going to have a different perspective when we're in heaven. We're going to go, wow, you're God, and you put on human flesh. God became man, all God, all man, and you were dependent upon a teenage girl? A teenage couple? Mind-blowing, right? All because you love me, all because you desire to save me. Maybe you have found Jesus to be somebody that you don't think is accessible or relatable. <laughs> Jesus actually went to a lot of work, great links to make sure that all people of all backgrounds could relate with Jesus. He's born to Mary and Joseph where no one believed the virgin birth story. Born in a small, obscure, small town, placed in poverty into a manger, was a refugee in Egypt, was a man of sorrows. The list just goes on and on. Went to the cross for you and died. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together. The bread represents his broken body. We remember the body of Christ, God in human flesh that was punished for our sins. The cup represents his shed blood. The new covenant, this new contract with God, where we have God's grace and forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. But if you haven't received Christ as your Savior, I want to give you an opportunity right now. I'm going to give you a chance in just a moment to raise your hand to Christ. Each of you know whether you have trusted Christ for salvation or not. And it's important for us to understand our sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
to turn and repent of our sin and to believe that Jesus died for you, that he rose again, calling out upon the name of Christ, that he would save you, asking him to be the Lord of your life. And if you choose to make that decision of faith, to receive that free gift, then God's faithful to his promise where he's going to give you everlasting life. The Bible teaches that we're made in God's image. And part of being made in God's image is we have eternal souls. So you're going to live for eternity either in heaven or hell. And God wants you to be in heaven. God wants you to be the child of God. But you have to open up the gift. It's not enough to just know about Jesus and to believe that he exists, but to make that decision of faith in your heart. Even an Amazon box that comes to the door, you know, a silly, stupid Amazon box, you got to open it up, right? It's not going to do any good if it stays in the box. And you maybe have heard about Christ and, and today's the day to trust him for salvation. I believe that Jesus is real and that he's here right now and he loves you. And as we go to pray, he's going to be speaking to your heart. He's going to be knocking upon the door of your heart. He already is. And will you respond? Raise your hand to Christ. This is not about joining a church. A church cannot save you. This is not about asking something from you. This is between you and Christ to trust Christ as your Savior. Online, I'd encourage you to raise your hand if you'd like to trust Christ for we know you're watching. Thank you for watching on the live stream. And, and right now, trust Christ as your Savior. So let's pray together. Jesus, we believe that you're here. We believe that you're real. We thank you that you love us, that you humbled yourself and came of no reputation. And Jesus, would you speak to hearts? Would you be revealing your love, revealing the need for salvation? If this makes sense to you and you'd like to receive Christ as your Savior, would you raise your hand and just raise it high and I'm going to lead you in a prayer to trust Christ for salvation. So if that's you today and you're wanting to trust Christ, would you raise your hand to him? Praise the Lord. Awesome. Praise God. Anybody else today that would say, man, I want to trust Christ for salvation. Praise the Lord. Awesome. For those of you that have your hands raised, just pray this with me. Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you died for my sins and rose again. I repent of my sin and receive your grace and your forgiveness. I invite you to be the Lord of my life. You can put your hands down. Father, thank you for those that have responded to the gospel. Thank for, for your promise as they believe that they're saved. Would you fill them with your Holy Spirit? Confirm your love to them. Give them a love for your word. Begin even now to, to grow them in you. And as we come and celebrate communion, would you meet us? Would you, would you bless our time in communion? In Jesus' name, amen.